1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tarin. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his paradigm-shifting book, Recalling the Caliphate, Decolonization and World Order, which was recently translated into Arabic as استعادة الخلافة, تفكيك الاستعمار, Salman Sayyid offers a breathtakingly brilliant meditation on the problem of decolonization through Muslim thought and politics. What are the foundational modern Western political and conceptual categories that inhibit and frustrate the project of decolonial thought? And through what resources and strategies might one stage and imagine alternate horizons of the political. These are among the questions that anchor this truly multivalent study that offers critical insights and theoretical dividends into a range of questions, problems, and conceptual registers. Written with exceptional clarity, Recalling the Caliphate especially raises and addresses crucial questions about the role and possibilities offered by Islamist thought in imagining a decolonial world order. This monumental book should be read and taught widely. Here now is my conversation with Professor Salman Sayyid. Well, thank you so much, uh, Salman, for being a part of uh, New Books in Islamic Studies and for your time today in talking to us. Uh, really a majestic book uh, with a lot of uh, questions and Important threads that I hope to get into in the course of our conversation. And uh, uh, congratulations on the uh, Arabic uh, translation of the book, which uh, just uh, recently came out, uh, entitled Isti'adat al Khilafah, uh, Tafqiq al Isti'amar Nizam al Alami. And it's uh, a great uh, honor, and uh, that also has become a good occasion for us to have you on uh, the New Books Network uh, for this important book, uh, Recalling the Caliphate. So we have a tradition, uh, Salman, on the the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. Could you share a bit with our listeners uh, how you became a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies and how did you get to write uh, this uh, particular book?
0: Okay, well, um, I think my main issue was that I was always interested in politics, but I wasn't particularly interested in politics Eurocentricism. So one of the challenges I had when I um to go to university was to find a discipline in which I could indulge my passion for understanding politics um, without being too bogged down in very kind of national and European politics. So I picked international relations. So my first degree was in international relations at Sussex, uh, which I did um, for a while. And uh, during that time, I got involved in, or quite quite interested in, issues of strategy. And I was just at the um, library one day and just sort of browsing through, and just put on lazily question of strategy. And this book called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy came up, and a kind of by uh, Leclerc and Muv. And I kind of thought, oh, that sounds like an interesting title. So um, I started trying to read that book. And from that, I then decided to do my master's at Essex in the ideology and discourse analysis program. And during my master's, I became quite interested in, well, two questions that always vexed me. I mean, I'd read um, Orientalism when I was almost out of high school, and I'd not that I kind of understood it, but it kind of spoke to me. And you know, you sometimes have books that speak to you, but that you don't really understand them. Um, they resonate, but you're not really sure why. And I think Orientalism was a book like that. And um, so f- after my master's, I decided to do my PhD, and I became quite interested in looking at the descriptions and um, analysis of what used to be called quite regularly Islamic fundamentalism. And and I just found that unsettling in two different ways because there were Most of the analysis was either coming from a very kind of um, economistic um, um, perspective, which was sort of through Marxism, or through a kind of general, what we call, what the Marxists would call a sort of bourgeois science versions. But they kind of converged in that they didn't think it was problematic to explain how um, Islam re-enters the, the world, in a sense, how it becomes a source of mobilization, and throughout and the other thing I was very conscious about, they tended to try and use kind of national matrixes to try and place it. So Islam was considered to be only important in this part of, in this country or that country, but never seen as a global phenomenon. And I was quite aware that you know this kind of sense of the um, sense of awareness of Islam and its possibilities in the social and political world was something that wasn't restricted. To one or two communities as such, so I think so. My first book, um, which was based on my PhD, was a "Fundamental Fear," and it was, the subtitle was "Eurocentrism and the Emergence of Islamism." And I really wanted to see how, in fact, Islamism as a political discourse becomes only possible with a kind of a, a de, what I would now call a decolonial fracturing or weakening of the Eurocentric embrace in which said that all politics had to follow a trajectory um, enunciated with the sort of European revolutions, whether it's the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution, etc. And it was simply to see um, how something like, for example, the Islamic Revolution in Iran or how this kind of mobilization in the name of Islam seemed to disrupt a lot of the verities around which uh, political analysis had been organized for 200 years so that was my kind of journey of sort of described that it's not a particularly um you know it's just one thing led to another thing kind of thing so there
1: so to begin with a more broad and general question Salman could you explain a bit to our listeners the title of this book recalling uh the caliphate uh what does this refer to uh, how do you employ it what what does that mean recalling the caliphate
0: sure um, I think the the thing about the recording, of the Caliphate, the title really emerges. So when I was looking at the question of Islamism, one of the things that I was trying to do was um, what well, became very clear to me that the kind of um, a lot of academic and journalistic effort was relating the emergence of Islamism to specific kind of crisis points, basically something in the news cycle that goes wrong, and then you explain um, the emergence of Islamism. So you know whether it was the um, Revolution in Iran, or before that, the OPEC oil shock of the mid 70s, or um, before that, you know, um, the 67 war. Uh, So there were these kind of crisis points. But what I thought was this this kind of domination of the analysis by looking at simply um, a kind of a presentism that whatever crisis occurs, um, then you try to find explanations for it in this phenomenon. But this phenomenon is only related to that latest crisis. And you keep the cycle, still repeats itself. So, for example, if you look at the proliferation of publications and interest around these issues after 9-11, and then, you know, and you can keep on, and then after the rise of um, ISIL, you know, all of these kind of moments, they don't seem to have any memory. So much so that if you talk to, you you know, my undergraduates, for example, some of them are unaware that there was, in the sort of 80s, it was considered to be, Iran was considered to be the center of um, Islamic fundamentalism or Islamism, etc., cetera. And it's, it was considered to be a Shia thing rather than a Sunni thing, you know? And, and it's been constant. And in fact, you, when you try and, um, try and put these in a sort of historical perspective, people find it very, very difficult. And one of the things I find really challenging is that most um, accounts of the Islamicate are very quick to make the jump from the 7th century to the present day but they can't make a jump between the present day to 20 years, 30 years, or even 100 years or 200 years. So the history of colonialism is simply written out of the record, but what is considered to what's happened in Medina or what happened in Mecca is considered to be able to explain what happens um, in the Twin Towers, for example, quite readily, that kind of almost a linear narrative which jumps over 1,400 years. So, I guess for the first thing about the title, then was that a lot of the um, spaces I argued in my uh, fundamental fear that was really opened by the abolition of the, or the de facto abolition of the caliphate um, by Mustafa Kemal. And the argument was that until the caliphate was abolished, there was a kind of scholarly I wouldn't put a consensus necessarily, but certainly an agreement um, and, and, and a popular agreement that Muslims knew what a good government was. And the good government was ruled by the caliphate, uh, a particular... And now the disputes were who should be the caliphate often, but not over the institution. So even among, for example, Shia accounts, it wasn't that the nature of the idea of the caliphate itself, but who should be occupying that and which how you should how you should hold office in that. That was the main kind of bone of contention. So it seemed to me that the idea of the Caliphate was, you know, as as a kind of opening up the possibilities of um, politicization of things which were, um, and asking sort of fundamental questions became possible through the space created by this uh, vacuum in a way. And you see this early on in the 1920s where various attempts are made to say, to reoccupy that space. And what was interesting is that in the 90s and the 80s, you have many, many Muslim movements also talking about the idea of the caliphate. So I guess in a way for me was really to use the caliphate as a metaphor to investigate the sense of what did the caliphate mean for most Muslims. Now, sure, you probably know that if you talk to many Muslims, they will often say something like, they'll make two statements They will start off normally by saying the idea of a Muslim unity is a very good idea, um, but it may not be possible. So it's a practical objection rather than a normative objection to the very idea. And I think that's quite a constant um, feature of these types of conversations. So the idea of recalling the caliphate was really, um, as I say in the book, an idea of what the caliphate meant in relation to the mobilization of Muslims under the sign of Islam. And I think that's what I was trying to, that's what I hinted at at the title there.
1: Now, in the first half of the book, you talk about certain key uh, Western uh, categories and concepts that are integral to what you very helpfully call Westernese. Uh, and two of the categories that you deal with are uh, secularism and liberalism. So walk us through the arguments that you develop in these two chapters titled Secularism and Liberalism, where you try to uh, disrupt dominant notions of these uh, words and categories uh, and through that try to envision uh, a decolonial uh, political order. But walk us through your argument in terms of what you do with these two categories of secularism and uh, uh, liberalism.
0: Well, I think um, the book is kind of organized in two kind of, I would say, parts, but um, there's a kind of a moment of clearing. And that was really um, my kind of sense that if you try and talk about the, the um, possibilities or the political possibilities of the Islamicate, you are confronted by a number of um, arguments which are fairly sort of standard and which are organized around, for example well the this is not secular so it must be wrong or this is not liberal so it must be wrong or this is not democratic so it must be wrong and what i try to show in all of these chapters is uh, you know the that the, that these um, arguments around the um, attempts to foreclose muslim autonomy are actually not strong or stable as they present themselves to be so i think the um, the one with the secularism one for as you mentioned is this that the argument for why secularism is useful or good is basically extrapolated from, at the best, European history, uh, particularly the Enlightenment reading of the War of Reformation and Counter-Reformation. So the argument then goes is that the reason why we shouldn't be talking about religion because it leads to violence. Now, it's not clear that if you expand your horizon of um, examples by which you understand the world beyond Europe, this is actually manifested that clearly. So in the case of, let's say, you know, um, Iraq or um, even Turkey or um, Syria, much of the violence committed was committed by regimes which were, in all intents and purposes, secular. Um, you know, certainly in relation to um, what had gone before. So one of the issues really was that the claims made for secularism depended on a particular reading of um, history of Europe and European religious conflict as being a template for all. So, for example, the um, dispute between um, the church and science. Um, Again, as I argue in the book, a lot of that depends on the notion that the divine and the human occupy the same ontological plane somehow, and they're involved in a zero-sum game. That's not something that comes very readily to a lot of um, Islamicate accounts, that, you know, the idea of the divine occupying the same space is more or less, I would argue, if not absent, certainly much weaker. So, it doesn't require that there is this kind of zero sum game between the two or um you know similarly the kind of claim that's made that um if you have these religious um passions they are far greater than other passions again um this is not something that has been um demonstrated by it kind of, well, demonstrating my historical record. But I mean, if before the Atlantic revolutions, you know, if you were a marginal person, a marginal person in some ways, if you could choose to live, uh, in, in, you know, anywhere in the world, perhaps many people would choose to live under um, Islamic rule because it was structured, it had a legal framework. Um, yes, there were cruelties and, and incidents and things like that. But it wasn't... Um, it wasn't so kind of intensive in terms of its surveillance, et cetera. So there are all these various kind of things which get bundled into the idea of the West is best and that it is best because it is secular. And therefore, what it forces is this, that for anyone to want the good life, they have to secularize themselves, which means in most Muslim societies, a lot of violence to make them non-Muslim so that they can become more amiable for transformations um and, 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 you know, a, a better social outcomes. And like I said, it doesn't seem very sustainable to make those kind of strong arguments in a way.
1: Now, in the next uh, chapter called Relativism, you really show in very interesting ways uh, uh, how often uh, the uh, sort of a critique of the Enlightenment is packaged as uh, uh, a critique which... Uh, is susceptible to the charge of being relativistic or falling into the folly of uh, relativism. Tell us a bit about this uh, uh, kind of uh, a charge, why is it problematic, and how does this relativism argument, as you call it, uh, try to suppress a particular kind of decolonial politics and hide uh, or conceal some of the darker aspects of uh, uh, Western uh, Enlightenment?
0: I think it's important to understand that this argument, while it's mobilized against um, Islamism in some cases, it's actually a broader argument which has various iterations, but it all centers around that even the opposition to the West is a gift of the West in a way and you can see this for example in arguments around um, uh, colonialism is also made that you know it's colonialism only was resisted when people learned about the rights of man by reading, uh, be, absorbing Western education, and then learned how to resist colonialism. So it's kind of very self-edifying um, you know, in a way. Um, you, know, and, 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 you know, a couple of years ago, there was this kind of celebration in Britain about the role that Britain played in ending slavery, um, outlawing slavery in um, 1807. Um, and what was not mentioned at the same time was the role it played in actually establishing slavery. (laughs) So you get all the rewards, and then there's a kind of amnesia. I don't know who started slavery, but we stopped it kind of thing, you know, that kind of argument. So I think the issue about relativism goes really hard, because if you try and critique um, the idea of the universal as being something uh, which is contingent rather than essential, you are often accused of being a relativist, in which you are basically accused of being saying that you think that everything is as good as anything else. And you see the examples that often come up that if you say, well, you you know, um, in, the, in the case of Muslims often comes up, well, you're in favor of um, chopping off hands or you are in shape of this kind of, this form of violence or that kind of violence. So the idea of this is that if you critique the Enlightenment, you must be a relativist. In a sense, what you're saying is that there are no such thing values. And I think what that argument misses out is, is that in the end, the hist- history itself means that the positions that we hold are historically formed, not something which are hardwired in our DNA or in the stars or whatever. So in a sense, the relativist argument is becomes another way of trying to prevent the sustained kind of critique of Eurocentricism, and I think this is why relativism is often deployed to stop any kind of decolonial gesture, because it simply places itself in the same way as um, in the same way around issues of um, that any of these challenges are a an assertion of the Western enterprise, and b they are unsustainable um, in the way that they actually they're unsustainable in the way that you make those claims because they are so beholden to the West. So anything else then is dismissed as relativism. But as has been pointed out by many, including, for example, prag neo-pragmatists like Richard Rorty or um other kind of post-structuralists, that at the end of the day, what we have is a mirror of history. And these claims themselves about relativism depend on a particular idea of Europe as being somehow this transhistorical entity, which is um, what's, what its values and what it incarnates is the universal unproblematically. And I think that's one of the central kind of elements in the argument that I want to sort of make around um, relativism in a way. Now, in the next uh, chapter on... Uh
1: the idea of democracy, you talk about in very powerful ways uh, uh, some of the ways in which uh, uh, democracy is often heralded as a signature achievement of Western modernity and this often assumed inverse relationship between democracy uh, and, uh, and the West or the idea that you know if a Muslim government is anti-Western, then uh, by nature it must also be anti-democratic and you show some very interesting examples. So again, walk us through this particular argument of how you try to disrupt this equation of uh, democracy with a celebration of uh, uh, the modern West.
0: What I often ask um, my students is to give me an example of a regime which is anti-Western and at the same time considered to be um, democratic. And they often struggle with finding those two things together. Now, you will concede that there's no logical reason why someone, a regime, could not be anti-Western and be democratic. But the problem in the reality is this: that any regime which is considered to be anti-Western, its democratic credentials are always up for grabs. In a way, it becomes contested. And why should that be the case? Um, and I think it goes back to this long narrative that it's very, very difficult to find. Instances in which the West is not considered to be more free than whoever or whatever it is opposing at any particular time. Now, this is a matter of historiography rather than history, as I give the example that you know people should ask: How is it that the Achaemenid Persians were able to um, rule over people who believed in no god, one god, and poor Socrates has to drink of hemlock, you know, for corrupting the youth? You know, how does that happen in those two different entities? Or, um, so I think one of the issues then is that what is democracy a marker of? And my argument is this, that once you kind of, the argument normally is made that democracy refers to a set of protocols and procedures. But rather than look at that, you actually see that democracy is more or less a cultural marker. So often regimes cease to be, their democratic credentials become questioned when they are seen to become anti-Western. And I think one of the easiest examples of this is look at the track record of the AK Party. Um, as it becomes more um, um, more confident and it becomes more independent, it becomes more and more suspect in relation to what it's doing at the at, at, at democratic level. So much so that, you know, you have people making comparisons between Ankara and Riyadh, and saying, you know, how is it that Ankara is so, uh, so despotic while um, attending conferences in Dubai? And this I, seems to me is, you know, slightly curious way of thinking about what we mean by democracy. Um, there's been recent work, I mean, I think, for example, you know, John Keane's work on looking at dem- um, different kind of beginnings of democracy and thinking about democracy um, not as a as a name the West gives to itself, but perhaps as a name for good governance and in different societies and different cultures may give it a different kind of name. And the reason why I think it's important is that if you want to, uh, or you want societies which are transparent or which are um, accountable, then it seems to me that if they have to impose uh, democratic norms, it doesn't start off well. So, again, the example between Erdogan is always pointing to how what a despotic leader he is, Un- and the supposition is that Mustafa Kemal was some kind of enlightened democrat, which clearly the record, you know, in terms of um, would would not support. So, I think these are the kinds of debates around the mobilization of democracy, and then that turns into, as you said, the impossibility of Islam being compatible with um, democracy. Um, again, you know, why there is no... I don't find any kind of argument around that um, very, very convincing. It only becomes an art, Even, for example, someone like Madhuti um, talks about, at different points, about um, democracy as being kind of vice royalty rather than sovereignty, you know. But here the meaning... Of, uh, the, but the idea of the sovereignty of the people as being defining democracy is, again, a particular fiction of um, specific Republican regimes in the United Kingdom. Uh, which is, you know, It's not the people, but it's Parliament, which is sovereign, for example. And there are many different iterations of how you can talk about sovereignty um, and what the sovereign means in particular, different kind of um, universes of inscription. So I don't think that the arguments made for democracy as being a bulwark, they all end up becoming culturalist arguments at the end of the day, rather than arguments around what the nature of this democratic venture has been and how it's presented itself. We always look back on democracy in a way as signaling what, where we are now and every other instance of it, the fact that it's been compatible with um, slavery or misogyny or... um you know imperialism etc are seen as anomalies rather than being intrinsic to it whereas everything that opposes it is supposed to be intrinsically negative etc and i don't think that follows
1: tell us a bit about what you mean by the category of diaspora which is the next uh, key chapter of the book and how does this idea of diaspora as you mobilize it as you understand it bring into question the modern nation state And then how does it connect with the idea and attraction of the caliphate as a home uh, in a uh, sort of a a, a world of the nation state, this kind of a Westphalian uh, world order of the nation state marked by homelessness uh, for much of the global south. So tell us a bit about this idea of diaspora and how does it disrupt and critique the idea or the category of the modern uh, nation state?
0: Sure. Um, I think one of the things was that I was sort of um, looking at um, work like um, Gilroy's, uh, Paul Gilroy's book on Black Atlantic. I was looking at different kinds of um, ways of dealing with the issue about um, political subjugation over the long durée. And one of the arguments that are central arguments running through the, um, recalling the caliphate, is that there is right now in the world a a kind of a disjunction between a, maybe uh, you know, a large percentage of the planet's population, maybe 20%, 25% or something like that, which um, identify or identify with others in all kinds of complicated ways as Muslims, or there's a sort of expression of Muslimness there. But there is no political structures which allow that to be reflected in the architecture of the world. And the consequences of that, I would argue, is what is happening to the Uyghurs in China or the Rohingya in Burma or the Palestinians or the Kashmiris. Or the Kashmiris. And you can multiply these examples depending on where you are. But part of it is that it's very difficult to see um, this kind of disjunction, um, like I said, between the a kind of a formation of Muslimness, which is global, and... It's homelessness that it doesn't able, it's not able to express its Muslimness in a meaningful way into the um, in the way in, in 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 the architecture, in the structure of the world. So it seemed to me here that the notion of diaspora helped to capture that poignancy of that loss because it wasn't that there was a particular homeland. So that's why because the Muslims are not are not a um they're not a nation or an ethnicity. Um, but they are subject to forms of ethnicization. But there is a sense in which Muslims are global. And again, it was quite extraordinary that um, if you look at the inmates of Guantanamo, how many of them came from how many different parts of the world kind of thing. You know, they were not just um, Arabs. They were not just um, from one uh, political community. They were actually from many different communities. So. For me, the kind of the diasporic element really showed to kind of uh, the idea of a fragmentation and this uh, recognition of that fragmentation and from that, the subjugation kind of thing, and the fact that you try and maintain and articulate um, an identity without those kind of political structures which enable and support that. And that, I think, produces both the kind of violence associated with... um, groups like ISIL and others, but also the violence meted out to Muslims, uh, you know, as marked through some ethnic signifiers around Palestinians, Rohingya, Uyghurs, or the reinstitution of Jim Crow in India. All of these kinds of elements are playing together in this um, grouping in which suddenly the world has woken to the fact that, you know, as I say, but the problem remains that the Muslims are too strong to be ignored and too weak to be accommodated. So there's always this kind of mismatch between what the structures are. And I thought that diaspora captures that very well, that in the world of Westphalian nation-states, where everyone has to be um, located in a nation-state, there is this uh, formation which seems to overflow the boundaries of nation-states, disrupting them and um, causing them Annoyance at best, but certainly certain kinds of um, critical reflection on their contingency, reminding them of their contingency. And I thought that the notion of diaspora helps put together this idea of what this thing about recalling the caliphate was, that why would so many Muslims think that there there has to be some way of settling this diasporic status. There has to be some way of making Muslims at home or Muslimness at home in this world.
1: Now, coming to one of the key categories of the book, which is also one of the next chapters, which is the caliphate, uh, tell us a bit about how does the idea of uh, caliphate operate in this work? What do you mean by this idea? And what are some of the possible misunderstandings of this category that one should be cautious of in terms of, you know, are you recalling the caliphate? Or what is, uh, you know, how does one sort of... uh, uh, Question: The uh, notion of uh, reading your book as a certain kind of a normative project for the caliphate. Uh, so, so how do you, how would you describe the way in which uh, caliphate as a category works in this uh, project?
0: Okay, um, I think, like you said, one of the key points that I want to I make is a distinction between morality and ethics, and basically, my point is that mor- all societies have morality simply as mores and customs of how they do things. But the ethical is something that it can be, can interrupt morality. In fact, it often is called upon to interrupt morality of the time in the name of something else. And you can see the kind of prophetic institution of that, um, through various kind of examples, you know, through the um, breaking of idols, uh, when the prophet enters, um, uh, Mecca to, um, you know, Jesus throwing out the moneylenders, et etc. You can see these different narratives in which often there is an ethical impulse which interrupts and ruptures what may have been considered to be morality, and often either in the name of the true morality uh, or something higher than that. Now, what I draw a parallel is between the ethical and the political in a sense that the, both of them are really reflect upon um, the idea of going beyond the present going beyond um, the current kind of arrangement of distribution of obligations and rights, et cetera, to something better or something higher than that or different than that. So I think that's the first kind of point that I want to make here. So one of the things that I think is is, is I'm, I'm very reluctant, and I think this is a kind of a misreading of the book that often people enter into, that this is a, some sort of blueprint for a particular um, particular form of the caliphate, or worse, it's somehow a anointing, uh, you know, one particular regime as the, the caliphate. I mean, I think the Muslim world suffers enough from having many, many kind of candidates for being khalifa but very few who want the caliphate. You know, I think this is a kind of tension there. So that's never been my intention. But I think what I think the caliphate points to in the current terrain is this it points to the idea of a political structure which is not bound by the uh, by the nation-state. And I think that's really important. So that's one of the issues that I say, that that one of the things is that the caliphate, to be the caliphate, would have to be something which was, I would describe it as post Musby and certainly post-national or transnational and trans-ethnic in a way, because that's the only way it can house that kind of um, the globality of the ummah. Anything else would be a kind of a retreat into nationalism, and I think that kind of narrow xenophobic nationalism is one of the major um, challenges um, for expression of Muslimness, not only in a kind of in in a kind of theoretical or conceptual sense, but actually lived experience sense in a way that the the imposition of xenophobic nationalism, its internalization into a kind of and crystallization around um, ethnicities etc undermines the muslimness which is transcends that so what i was trying to see with the caliphate is that when people talk about the caliphate what they have in mind is a different kind of political structure than the one that is simply of the nation state writ large uh, and i think that's a really really important point so in, in a way that's that it seems to me is what they're trying to imagine in in, in various uh, ways is a different configuration of political agency and autonomy that allows Muslimness to be expressed while remaining, however problematically, Muslimness. So it doesn't become reduction to one nationality or one uh, madab or one ethnicity or anything like that. I think that would be something that, and I think that's, that's quite clear. So this is why, you know, the Muslim response to the idea of the caliphate is to see it as a universal, uh, or what I say was at least certainly a transnational phenomenon rather than a national phenomenon. So I think um, for it to become this kind of, um, and the reason is this, that ultimately what a kind of a political structure like that would be, would enable um the expression of Muslimness to be projected into the future—that it seems to me—is um, different than the idea of domesticating Muslimness into very kind of um, forms of um, narrowly conceived uh, entities, whether they be the nation, whether they be mothers, or whether they be um, you know other forms of sects and ethnicities and nationalities, etc. So I think that's what I was trying to say about the kind of. The caliphate, that it is the caliphate is something which transcends. Uh, because one of the arguments that I'm making in throughout the book, and I think it goes back to the earlier point you spoke about, Westernese, is that in many ways, uh, if you think about Muslimness, it is a very odd kind of subjectivity right now. And it's odd because it is heavily invested in effectively, and I think there's enough demonstration to show that. But it is not, it doesn't lend itself to easy. Um encapsulation within the architecture bequeathed by the Westphalian model. Um, and that it seems to me is 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 quite an interesting challenge in a way that it doesn't allow itself or doesn't um is always um Find it challenging to do that. That it wants to make those kinds of connections. It has to make those connections, and I give the reasons for that during the you know the chapter on, on hermeneutics, where I talk about, for example, anywhere in the world, if someone is re- if there's a reading of the Quran, it affects other readings of the Quran, other interpretations and things that go through there. It's very difficult for Muslims to conceive of Muslimness at this point in time as being kind of um, completely independent. Of other Muslims. So, you know, you have instances in in, in in the case of Bosnia that many people responded to the plight of the Muslims in Bosnia, often not knowing there were Muslims in Bosnia before they became, had plight. I mean, it's almost like that. They didn't know, you know, they were there. Um, so there's all these kinds of examples that you can put together, and not just contemporary, but even historically, that, you know, that there's this kind of the signifier of Islam circulates in particular ways, and its circulation marks out a, a community which cannot be contained within the boundaries of any form of nationhood. And that's where I think a lot of the challenges it presents for the um, uh, political regimes, both in uh, in, in you know uh, in Muslimstan and and, and and elsewhere, is precisely how to negotiate that um, that quality. Um, of muslimness which is transnational and in that sense it speaks to it fundamentally underwrites the pluralism of the world uh, in a way that i think is important even as a kind of ecological bet that we don't want the world to be completely homogenized into one particular kind of um, one type of formation or expressions of lifestyle etc
1: so as a final substantive question, uh, Salman, um, perhaps I could ask you uh, with this very provocative and interesting and uh, really uh, uh, sort of complex book, what are some of the possible misreadings of the book that you would want uh, readers again to be cautious of? And how does it, if I may ask you, relate, how does this project relate to the larger project of decolon- decolonial studies and the critical Muslim studies that you have inaugurated and that you are Currently a part of. How does this project connect to these two ideas of uh, decoloniality and critical uh, Muslim uh, studies?
0: I think, Shirley, you know, as you, you know, as our author, you have to give up on people's misreading of the book because otherwise, it drives you insane. Did I really say that? I don't think I ever wrote this book, the one that has been misread so hugely. Nor do you can you have this kind of thing that you know what you've said is the right thing. So I think there's that element to it. I have been, um, I have, I have to say, been surprised at the conclusions that the um, some people have drawn. I'll say two things about the book which I find kind of interesting. Italian is the first language, European language, that is being translated into uh, there. The other languages the book is being translated or has been translated into. Tend to be off the global south. Now that I think, it tells its own story in some way, that the, how the book may circulate and what people find, um, uh, you know, what they find worth engaging with or not. Um, I think there was an element in which the book came out just at the, I think, uh, very close to the height of the uh, emergence of ISIL, and and somehow you know, it was seen as somehow to be a book. And then there are people who read the book and then they comment upon the kind of exercise that it does, that it does. There's not enough data in the book, apparently. There's not enough empirical examples about ISIL in there. So there are certain kinds of expectations about what a book written about the Islamicate or written by authors of colour should do. And I think that's also part of the kind of academic division of labour that you leave um, your duty as a kind of glorified native informant is offered to present ethnographic details or empirical studies, leave the kind of um, the more kind of philosophical or theoretical kind of impressions to others. You know, so I think there's there was that kind of element to it. And again, um, it's something that, you know, a book called The Recalling the Caliphate is always seen to be a book which is very, very specific. Um, rather than a book which is really, I would say, a series of reflections on the relationship between history and the political and the fact that it it is told through the story of the Islamicate is, is, is important, but it's no more important than, you know, I would say books written about the West are often seen to be exemplars of the human condition rather than particularity. So I think there is that element to it, that how to read, it, the book often involves you in a certain kind of um, hierarchy of knowledge production and a certain kind of questioning about well, really, this a book about the caliphate or a book about Muslims should really write something about what the um, you know what the Muslim Brotherhood or what jamaat Islami or who <laughs> the Act Party are doing and why it doesn't do that and I think that's one of the kind of is there, or the other one is that often comes is that um, the uh, the distinctions that I draw, one thing you know, I draw between, for example, Islamism and the kind of it are too solid. Everyone now is a post-Islamist, or everyone is there. It kind of so I think it's kind of frustrating at some points where the central argument of the, I suppose one of the central arguments is this, that the notion of contingency. Uh, is really central to the book. And what I'm looking at is how that contingency is mastered at various moments in time and crystallized around certain kinds of um, conjunctures. But it's only a kind of a temporary um, weakening of the contingency, and if that's possible. So, in a way, the recording of the caliphate then is not a. Um, like I said, a particular, you know, a desire to have a institution ready formed, um, and dis- despite, like I said, multiple candidates who would wish to be caliph, Khalifa, uh, caliph- and all this thing, but really, it's to look at can Muslims, what is the future of Muslimness in this world? And it seems to me that you know, that's really the issue here: that either Muslimness it, it becomes fragmented and simply. Um, policed into oblivion. And I would say that, you know, what's happening now in, in in, in uh, you know, in China, in parts of China, point to that. And the whole kind of uh, rhetoric or what's happened in the Rohingya or the Palestinians, the Kashmiris. You can multiply these examples, but the key there is that Muslimness has to be so disciplined that it becomes completely unable to, um, you know, unable to exist in a sense there. Or we find a way in which the organization of the world begins to reflect that they uh, reflect and accommodate Muslimness as part of the kind of rich tapestry of global history. And I think that's where the challenge is. And to do that requires us to fundamentally rethink not only who Muslims are, but also to re- rethink in relationship to everything around that as well. So... I guess the point that I would finish with, you know, is is, is to do with the, the project of critical Muslim studies that you asked me to talk about. And, 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 you know, I kind of, obviously, critical Muslim studies, and I see the sort of proliferation of um, these critical um, claims for critical Muslim studies. But as I say in the book, the things that I think um, motivate me is partly, obviously, that there is a kind of a sense that it is post-positivist, partly because positivism and empiricism have been so entrenched with the kind of one of the key white mythologies in a way. so expression of whiteness in a sense and the kind of a white supremacy. so that's so that one argument around that is post positivist. I also make the point that it it is kind of post orientalist and what I mean by that is not that Orientalism is over, but also it takes seriously the critique of Orientalism and then says, okay, so what can we do now if we take orient the critique of Orientalism seriously um, and it can't simply be resolved by, Appeal to um, enlightened um, scholarship, et cetera, because that's not where the problem is lies. And it's also kind of, you know, I would say that it, 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 you know the thing about being post-post colonial or decolonial is precisely the fact that it puts it into raises the questions about the idea of the planet as being, being told as a history. Simply, an expansion and illustration of the history of the West becomes the history of the world. And I think the emergence of global Muslimness raises questions about that possibility or challenges uh, that need to be sorted out. So I think those kinds of strands of um, the the, the decolonial element of recalling the caliphate and the kind of articulation of critical Muslim studies as being produced by an engagement between what the Islamicate means for the decolonial as well as what decolonizing the Islamicate means and they're not identical questions and I think that's where the next um, you know, that's what I'm working towards and what I'm kind of interested in
1: So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, Salman, could you just, uh, share with our listeners a bit, what is the next project, what are you working on these days?
0: Uh, I think Um, I hope my publishers aren't listening because I think that's uh, I'm overdue on um, to a book that I was supposed to have finished a while back, but I'm still trying to finish, which really takes up some of these themes called Islamism as Philosophy, and it really looks at the question about, uh, in a more kind of um, considered way, about the idea of the decolonial and the Islamicate, and I think that's something that I want to be exploring. Um, um, And I think that's one of the things that i'm trying to work out is really that to what extent if you take the kind of decolonizing um, critique and the recognition that the world that we live in the um, is both an epistemological project and and europe names both an epistemology as well as a, as, as a kind of an imperium then how do we think of the post western how do we start imagining what are the possibilities of that and, and i think that's and what part, if any, would the Islamicate have to play in the kind of um, construction of a post-Western imaginary? That's what I'm working on, I think.
1: Recalling the Caliphate by Salman Sayyid, uh, recently translated into Arabic as استعادة الخلافة, تفكيك الاستعمار والنظام alami. Uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, Salman, for joining us on the New Books Network. Uh, really thrilled to uh, have read your book and to have engaged with it. I'm sure it will continue to spark many conversations. Congrats again on this Arabic translation. And uh, I'm sure our listeners also really benefited from uh, your insights and from your erudition. So uh, thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Salman Sayyid about his wonderful book recalling the caliphate i hope you enjoyed this conversation and i also hope you will join next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast new books in islamic studies which operates online through the new books network until then this is your host Sher ali tarim signing off take care stay well and keep listening to new books in islamic studies